Hey, deal makers, welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. Our guest today is a Harvard-educated CPA who is also a limited partner on 260 units and a GP on almost 1,300 units. And she uses the syndicated deal analyzer and helps investors in her private community navigate the SDA to underwrite deals. Her name is Mai Dong. And it's going to be fascinating because we talk a lot about how she was able to overcome a lot of those limiting and false beliefs about getting started. Talking to brokers, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to raise money those kinds of things. And she is a firecracker. I just love it. This is a great, fantastic show. You're really going to enjoy that, especially if you're struggling with some of these mindset issues as well, which we all do. A uh, quick reminder that DealMaker Live is coming up really soon, June 1 to 3 in Dallas, the number one multifamily event of the year. We have over 30 speakers, hundreds of investors to network with. We got Hal Elrod as a keynote. It's going to be magical. So make sure you get those tickets while you still can. They're at dealmakerliveevent.com. So I'm going to give a shout out to Ibrahim via Amazon and left us a review on Amazon for the yellow book. It says, this book helped me get my first deal. That's awesome. Read it, obsess over it. You won't regret it. Let this be your manual. It won't be easy, but it sure will be worth it. That's awesome, Ibrahim. Thank you for that. If you've read the yellow book and found it helpful, please give us a review on Amazon as well to help others find this resource. If you have not, you must read it. It's called Financial Freedom with Real Estate, just like this podcast. It's awesome. So success highlights, we like to highlight people who have done a first deal and it was Raquel and Kyle Atkins, husband and wife team. And these guys are awesome. They're going to be at DealMaker Live talking about their case study. They did a 40 unit deal in Macon, Georgia. It was a $3 million deal and they raised about $1.5 million. Their mentor was Duamel Velon. And this is awesome, okay? This is a really amazing story that these guys, they've overcome a lot of challenges and they got their first deal done in an environment that people say can't be done. And people are doing it all the time. You'll see my talk about three deals she's closing right now. Mentoring is magical. Or if you were able to invest in yourself, it is the best investment you can make far better than putting it in real estate yourself. And we'd love to have a conversation with you if you want to be mentored. It just it helps overcome some of these mindset issues, helps you achieve your goals faster, avoid some of the bigger mistakes. So check us out at themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor and just have a call with us. There's no obligation call as well. I want to talk about some things that are going on right now. You may have seen, you know, some foreclosure, 3,200 units in Houston, for example. There was a foreclosure there and you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Is the sky falling? Is this just the tip of the iceberg? And I dug into it a little bit. It's it's a learning opportunity, so much so. I mean, honestly, over the last five years, you couldn't screw this up. I mean, everyone's a genius. And so when you look at how some of these deals were bought, and this explains a lot, honestly, like two years ago, a year ago, it was very competitive. We're like, man, we're struggling finding deals. We're getting outbid. Are these, do these guys know something? No, they were just really aggressive. So, and, and what's happening now is people are getting exposed. The operators are getting exposed. The operators who bought wrong, too aggressive, unable to operate correctly, they're getting exposed now. And that's what's what's happening. And this is no exception. These guys got an 80% loan to cost alone, which is very aggressive. And then they didn't get a rate cap. Back two years ago, everybody's buying rate caps because everybody knew interest rates were going up. Now, no one could foretell 
that rates are going up this fast as quickly, but we knew it was going up. And so we paid and we bought insurance, these interest rate caps, and these guys did not. So they probably got into it like everybody else, three, you know, 3.75% interest. And it floated all the way up to where it is now, probably like seven and a half percent. They are getting absolutely crushed. They went into the red and went out, ran out of money. They probably tried to do a capital call, but no investor wants to put in money into a deal that's that's sinking. I mean, why would you do that? So they're like, no, I'm not participating in that. And so they had to give the keys back to the bank. And it's just an example of, of what not to do. And you got to be conservative. It's always been the case. It's always been the case that you have to be conservative. Now, you can't be too conservative because otherwise you'll never get a deal done. Okay, so you can't you know, be too conservative, but you can't be aggressive either. We're going to talk about it in a show with with Maya today and finding that balance. And she's a CPA, right? She even says she's very conservative, yet somehow she's getting deals done. So she must have found a way to balance her need for security and being conservative and getting deals done as well. So a super interesting person, Maya, is, and you're really going to enjoy this interview. Let's get right into it with Maya Dong. Maya, welcome to the show today. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. So give us a little background on yourself. You've done a lot of LP investing, but you've done a lot of GP investing yourself. So give us a little background on yourself. Thank you. Yes. My name is Mai Duong. I'm a CPA. I currently live in Tampa Bay area with my husband. I started real estate investing a while ago. And the very first template that I use is the Michael Blank uh, SEA. <laughs> I invest in two deals as an, a limited partner. And after that, all of the deal I have done so far is general partners. So I participate in different roles in the process. For some, I'm the one who, who did the underwriting or negotiation. For others, I joined the team that already identified a deal. So I participate in uh, seven deals now. Four have closed and two more to be closed. Actually, three more to be closed in the next few weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so let's back it up a little bit here. So you start investing as an LP. The, the bigger question is most people invest in stocks, right? Mutual funds, ETFs. And and I'm sure, you know, you did the same thing for many, many years because everybody else around you does the same thing. And, and what happened to you where you started looking at alternative investment classes or asset classes? And what did you all look at? And then what did you end up investing in? And then why did you end up investing in multifamily? Yes, thank you. So like everybody else who works for corporate America, my investment in stock is in my 401k, right? So I put in the maximum. I do everything we were told to do. And I saw that it's fluctuate up and down. It doesn't really have any reason to that. And so I invest in single family home. I've done a few. Turnkey, you invested in turnkey or did you actually buy a house? Or when, when you say you invest in single family, what did that look like? We bought the property. And we rented out, so rental property. I see. So I see. very little work put into there because I'm a CPA, right? I push paper. I don't really <laughs> have the skill to do renovation and things like that. Yeah. So I, I, I realized that, you know, real estate is the wealth generation for 90% of Americans. And so why is it that we so focus on stock and bond? So I changed my mind there. And recently, I just thought recently in the last few years to look into real estate. As everybody, I started out in single family, own three little single family home. And then I say, there have to be something better. Mm. And that is when I found multifamily and I asked for a suggestion for a template to use. And I was recommended to use Michael Black. So that's how I found your website. And then I 
a look at the underwriting package and I use it. I yeah. sat through every training that you have there. <laughs> I look through every videos in your website and I think that's the best practice. Yeah, because I mean, doing that, you're, you know, you're, you're a good understanding. You're shining yeah. a light on the importance of underwriting deals and the syndicated deal analyzer is what you're referring to. It's probably the most widely used underwriting tool for syndications. And you're right about that. Now, as an LP, and let me ask you, I get this question a lot, is if, if I'm a passive investor, do I still need to know how to underwrite deals? Or the better question is, to what degree do I need to know how to underwrite deals? Ah, good question. Because I'm a conservative CPA, I have to understand whatever I put my money into. So I actually ask for the underwriting of the property that I invest in. However, I think for a layman who don't have finance accounting background, it might be difficult, right? So I think for a regular limited partner, maybe if they just got to understand the ARR, what is the ARR, the IRR, then that would be sufficient. Understand the multiplier. And the key thing is to understand how the assumption used in the underwriting affect the return, then that would be sufficient. They don't necessarily have to be the one who plug in the number and do the whole underwriting themselves, but understand how important the assumption can be to their return because you just go into the P&L tab in Michael Blank template, right? And you change the P&L assumption in there, that can produce a totally different return. So when I help people understand underwriting, I focus to them to show them how a change in assumption up or down can change your return in a very significant way. You bring up a, a good point, which is a one of return and the assumptions behind it, and therefore with a level of risk. One of the things that always kills me is when you see packages from other syndicators and they have like this enormous return on there. And you're like, oh my gosh, how are these guys getting this return? Like no investor is going to invest with me when they're going to invest with them because the return is higher. Now, of course, in this environment we're in right now, no one really cares about the return. They all care about the risk. And so it's mm -hmm. always been there. Talk about yeah. what is, in your mind, what is a risk-adjusted return? In other words, when you look at an investment and someone says, oh my, you should look at the risk-adjusted return, like what does that mean to you? Well, the risk-adjusted return will mean literally how you modify your return to adapt to the risk environment surrounding the properties, right? So in my mind, that is incorporating the risk related to the fluctuation in the market, the inflation, the risk increase. We, as you know, in the last one year and a half, we have had 10 times of interest rate hike, the first time in history, right? And so with that, every the most conservative estimation will go, go out of the door if you have to deal with interest rate that fluctuate that much. So right now we have we see debt distress. In, in, in the multifamily world and other type of property as well because of that. We also, because of the inflation, we also saw high insurance bill, right? Insurance bill can come, you know, double compared to what you have before. And uh, starting from January of this year, it is insurance across the country have increased. So all of that are the, are the risks that we have to, you know, we have to adjust for the, for, for the underwriting right now which is a year ago, those issues don't exist, don't even exist. So in my mind, that is what that means. If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year, and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal 
in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you and set up a, a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Why did you get started on the GP side? So you, you, were, you were investing as an LP. You're like, this is pretty cool. I don't have to deal with tenants myself. That's pretty neat. Why did you decide to become a little more active? And then, so why, but then how did you do it? What, what, did, you decide, what did you decide to do? How did you become active? Uh, yes, sir. So basically, investing as an LP is basically just a stepping stone for me to build a biography, to do deals as a general partner, because as you know, you will have to have massive capital to invest to earn the return from there significantly, right? So if you just put in 100000 here, 100000 there, it doesn't go really far. So my goal has always been to become a general partner. So investing in LP is a way for me to explore, to see how other team build their project, how they put the team together, how they get the investor. So that is learning for me so that I can emulate our, our deal toward that standard, if this is a good one. And then also through reading through the PPM, private placement memorandum, and the subscription and all of that, of a deal that I participate in at an LP that give me the background to prepare to become the GP. And then when I become the GP, I did three things, which I think is normal for a general partner. The first one is to understand the underwriting process cold, right? So I have done more than 300, 350 underwriting using your template and sometimes other version of template that I saw out there as well. Get the underwriting down cold. Understand how to communicate with brokers, negotiate well, understand the risk, and then get a deal on the contract. And then at that point, reach out and find people to do partnership with. So I really, your goal of helping, you know, the professional to go away from the book, you know, to, to build well beyond the corporate job is something that resonates with me. So I am also partnering with people with the same background. All of my partners are typically corporate employees or some are entrepreneurs. And that's how we form. We have the same common background. So you talked about partnering a lot. So when, as, you, as you became as a GP, what was, mm -hmm. your, what was your role in the GP? What did, what did you do? Like, what was your primary role? Yes, I have performed all of the tasks in the partnership except for being the KP, key partner who signed up on the loan because I don't have a big network yet to sign up on the loan, but I've done everything else, sourcing the deal, putting down money for risk capital. All of the tasks in your task return, in your microbank template, capital raising, asset management. The only task that I have not been able to do so far is to sign up on the loan. Well, that will surely come. How did you overcome that, the KP? So you don't say you don't have the net worth. Well, how did you solve that problem? Oh, we partner with people who do. So we ah. partner with a few friends and acquaintances who have large network and experience. Some of them have done a lot of investing over 20 years. They just did it as a JV, for example. They have never done a syndication. So they have the background. They have signed up on loan with Fanny, Freddie. Some even with HUD loan, but mm. they have not done it as a syndication. So now they partner with us and so that we can do it together. So we have some partner with small networks, some partner with really big networks, and we, you know, join force to do it together. All right. Multifamily so family is a team sport. So, yeah. so you've been the lead GP then with some partners. So, 
No, I have not. I have not. I I was always go GP, not lead GP. Okay, but yeah. were you calling brokers and finding deals and and making offers? Okay, that so you did yeah, you, yeah. you did do that. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. so I here's a, the one of the thing I hear a lot is you know brokers aren't going to take me seriously for a variety of different reasons. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too this. I'm too that. Was that an issue for you being taken seriously? That fear and and if so, how did you overcome that? You have excellent question. When I first started out, I was concerned because I didn't have background in commercial real estate. However, because I'm a CPA and I was in junior executive level in corporate America, my communication with brokers have been very smooth, easy. I did a lot of research and I prepared myself in advance. I prepared 25 questions to ask brokers. I practiced, you know, by myself, listen to other people's, you know, before I started out. So when I start out, I use some of the very good term to ask. Actually, some of the term I learned from you. Like you said, I remember the first video that I, that I learned from you. You were proposing a question like, what is this property trade at? Yeah. Like, without being in the, in the business, you would not know that kind of turn the vernacular, right, to you. So I actually do a lot of research, watch a lot of YouTube, Watch everything in your website before I start talking. When I talk, I, I build good rapport with brokers for all the people who may not have the finance or accounting background or corporate background. My suggestion to them is just to do a lot of homework, practice. If they are in a mastermind, then follow the coach instruction. And then the more you do it, the, more, the, the better you will become. And practice with some small deal first. Practice with the deal that you don't plan to, to, to buy. Then you can make a lot of mistakes and not worry about having a bad image with the broker. Yeah. That's great advice. And what I'm hearing you say is, you know, prepare, right? Prepare, practice, prepare. and and then mm -hmm. sometimes practice with brokers or deals or areas where you're not going to buy. We call that the throwaway market where you're basically calling on brokers in a market you're not going to buy in. I love that. And I, it sounds to me that you overcame some of your limiting beliefs or some of your disbeliefs simply by practicing and simply by doing. Is that a good summary? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So did, with, yeah, with more knowledge and practice, you become more confident. And yeah. with that confidence, you can go from small property to big property, practice first, and then get all of the question out. And then you can see that your question, your question to the broker will be different, very different from one to another. Yeah, the way to ask questions. I used to be an auditor with PricewaterhouseCoopers, so talking to people is not an issue. I can find out a lot from the question that was that the answer that was given to me. So personally, I don't see a problem, but I can understand that this can be a difficult challenge for a lot of people. Now, what about raising capital? Were you involved in raising capital at all, or did, did, did another partner do that? Yes, I raised capital as well. I usually raise a minimum of half a million dollars for each of the deal that we've done. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's outstanding. Well, same thing. I mean, talk to us about, you know, when you first started doing this, a lot of people are hung up on asking people for money, even friends and family. In fact, they say, I don't even want to ask friends and family. I don't want to beg them for money or I've never done this or I don't think I can ever do that. What did you go through when you started raising money? How did, what, what was your mind like at the time? Yeah, initially, I'll be honest, initially it was difficult because people didn't know me as the multifamily person. They know right. me as a CPA auditor. Right. right. So when I explained to people about the deal, 
I typically do the homework to make sure that I feel comfortable about the deal. I know the deal is good because you have to know that first. If I don't think that the deal is good, I cannot push it to anyone. Second, I train myself to go away from the mindset that you go ask people to do you a favor. You actually do them a favor because it's not difficult. It's not easy for them to go find this type of return. If they put money in the bank or in stock, right? You have seen that the stock crashed from March of 22 to now. I know a lot of friends who have their 401k cut by one third, right? So when I explain about the deal, I always show them my underwriting. I show them my assumption. I told them that every investment carry risk, right? So we will never have something that is guaranteed, but we have done our due diligence so that, you know, the performance will be at least similar to what we told you. And this is a, a different type, a new type of investment. You don't have to be convinced by us. You can do your own research, figure out yourself. And we try to provide data to explain to the investor. For example, this is your typical return from stock and bond. This is how the market perform. This is how the deal perform and things like that. When you was, when you first started out, people always ask you, you, what was your portfolio, right? So it was very difficult for someone new. So the, the, the best way is to partner with people who have done this and then learn from them. And then later on, you build your, your confidence from there. Yeah. Is that what you did? Did you partner with did you partner with others who had more of a track record? Is that was that the lead GP? Yes, the our K our lead GP, the one who signed off on the loan. One have thirty years of experience. One have twenty five. One have twenty years. So with that, you learn a lot from just collaborating with them. Yeah. Now, why would they bring someone like yourself on? Right? Talk. How did you get them or convince them that partnering with you is a good idea? Mm, okay, great. Thank you. I share this and I hope that this benefits new people too. Always think of yourself as someone who has some skill set, right? Because to be a successful GP, you've got five or six tasks that you perform, right? So if you have the finance skill, accounting skill, you do the underwriting, you walk the property, you talk with the brokers, you negotiate, right? If you are the one who don't have that skill yet, but you have some money available, you can participate and help the team put down the deposit, right? Because that is also a, a, another task that you have to perform. If you can raise capital, that's another skill. And if you live by nearby the property, you can also help with asset management. As a finance person, for me, budget, finance, operation come easy. So those are the area that I can contribute to the team. I would know very little about renovation, for example. So that would be my, my weakness. Then I partner with people who have operation skill or renovation skill. And then you learn on the job. You learn on the job. Yeah. Early on when you partner, and let's say you do have some, some skills, right? Should you expect compensation for this? And if so, what kind of compensation should you expect as a, as a new partner? Or should you even work for free? Yeah. So I heard a lot about non-compensated GP tasks or work for free to learn, right? My understanding is that it is illegal to be a partner just to raise capital, right? So that the SEC doesn't want us to do that. So if you are a partner, you want to be a full-fledged partner. For a new person, it is hard to push for that, right? So typically, you will want to help with helping with due diligence, helping with 
asset management on top of, of capital raising so that you can be given some percentage of other tasks. If you are in a deal that the experienced people don't want to give you the percentage related to those tasks that you have to you know, ask yourself, is it something that I want to join? Is it normal? Is it the is it the, the norm, right? If you, you consider all of that and you still want to do, then I think it's still worth it. When I first started out, I asked the experienced people, give me the deal that you want to do. I will do several underwriting for you because I'm doing it to learn it myself and to build goodwill. So I don't mind that. But when when you have been through and have some experience and you still being approached and given, you know, zero come task, then I don't think it's fair, right? So I think we have to strike a balance. A new person should not expect to have the moon, but it should not be treated unfair either. So I think in this market, in this in this kind of industry, I see a lot of new people having to accept terms that really disadvantages to them because they are not being sh- knowledge is not being shared. And that is one of the reasons why I like your spreadsheet your template because I point people right into that top, the top return in which they can see the general partner worksheet and they can know from day one that is how the general partner is being designed. There are people who may have been doing this for a long time, but they never see that worksheet. So they may constant contributing in a project and they just take whatever given to them. They didn't know how and where the percentage come from or how to compute it. And yeah. I found out as a surprise. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It gives you a methodology for coming up with compensation or equity for each of the partners based on the roles and what they're doing in the, in the GP. Now, I yeah. remember earlier you said that you were closing or you have closed and are in the process of closing a bunch of deals. Okay. So let's talk about that because, and I get this all the time, but specifically now people are like, oh no nothing pencils. Deals can't be done anymore. Now explain mm-hmm. to us how in the world you're getting deals done right now. Yeah. Okay. I, I can share with you. I, I am a principal with Sunbelt Equity Group. So our team typically focus in the Sunbelt state. So, so far we have property in Texas, uh, Florida, and Georgia, right? So i give an example. We have a deal right now that we bought a property in Dallas. And the property price per unit is eighty-six thousand, and it's in a, one of the top place in in Dallas. It's a value add property for sure. So we will put in some effort to improve it, but the location is great. So, so that that in- price per unit eighty-six thousand. What do you think it was a year ago? A year ago, <laughs> a year ago it would of course. I guess because a year ago the interest rate has been three point eight, three point seven, right? So deal would have been very different before. Now, with the purchase price, we can still, the deal is still penciled in because of the renovation work that we do. But the interest rate that we take is 5.4. Yeah. So you can see the, dip, the big difference there, right? 3.75 versus 5.4. Of course, the price is being influenced. Yeah. But good deal are always out there. You know, so people why, sell for different reasons. Yeah. Why, why did this particular seller sell? Did they have to sell? Did they want to sell? You know, they could have just held on, but why are people selling right now when the prices are down? Yeah, so you'll be surprised. People sell for all kinds of reasons. The very first one that I saw is the partnership have seven years plan, and now it's due. They have to sell to pay money to the investor. That's the first one. That is the 
the structure cells. Then they also have the market cells, market-driven cells, because years ago they took loan, bridge loan or something, and they have a floating rate. And now the floating rate come due, and they have to pay. Now they have to pay with the floating rate, which is much higher. And so they they barely produce enough to pay for that, right? So that's another one that they have to sell. And then you always have personal reasons, people retiring or divorce, the proceeding, they have to do it. So there's always people like that. Of course, the market right now is very, is not very friendly to the sellers. So unless they have some problem or they already run it for several years, they already make the money, they already refine the property, then they're safe. Then now they can just, you know, they can afford to sell, not having a lot of loss. I have seen both. I have seen property that have to have to be sold. And we are told that the seller are market sellers. We also saw that a property doesn't have any problem, but the owner owned it for seven, eight years, and now they want to sell. Yeah. Yeah, they've already made their money. And so they're like, yeah, I, yeah, I know prices are down 10, 15%, but I already made my money and we're going to sell it anyway. And the other class mm-hmm. of, of sellers are the ones who have to sell. And yeah. how do you respond to someone that says there's no deals out there? That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Yeah. And also a little trick that I want to share with people. You may hear very generic description about why a property is being sold, right? But focus in the T12. Because when the seller, the brokers give you the financial, the trailing 12 months, right there, right under the NOI, you will see a line for interest expense or interest payment, right? If you see an interest that goes from 38000 a month to 108 then that seller is a market seller, even though they didn't tell you, right? So there's a lot of things that you can find out from the financial. And if you read the financial the way I read it, I was an auditor for six years with PricewaterhouseCoopers. I can find fraud just by looking at the number. So if you pay attention to that, you can find a lot of unspoken code, word, and, and then you can you know, base your negotiation on that. What does that tell you when you see the interest or expense go up like that? What clue is that? The, the clue is that they are in a floating rate yeah. arrangement. Okay. And so sometimes they have that interest expense there and then they do have a line called income cap, interest cap. So that interest cap, Offset it, offset it a little bit, but it's still a big number. So you can see that, hey, this seller have to get out because now they have to deal with this kind of, of debt service that they have didn't have to do it before. So we know without saying that they, they have to sell. Yeah. So you have some some leverage over them. It's like a 1031 exchange. They have to sell before that cap comes due. From a seller's perspective, the risk is very great because if you don't perform and mm-hmm. they have to renew their cap. They can't afford to. Now they're in a default situation. So, and I think, I don't know if you see it that way, but I think we're going to see a lot of distress coming from that in, in the market, which is going to be a great opportunity for all yeah. of us. But how have you adjusted your underwriting? Again, a lot of people say, oh, this is an awful market to buy in. And I say, you know, it, it's always an awful market. The, the difference is how do you adjust your underwriting? And so how have you had to adjust your underwriting over the last year or so? Yes, I adjust my underwriting for five things. The first one is I adjust for the interest rate, for sure. In the past, when I first started out doing this, this was 3.75, and I didn't have to put in a cushion, right? Now I put in a whatever rate that I was quote, I put in a cushion of half a point. That's the first one that I adjust. The second thing that I adjust is I actually go and get insurance indication, or in some case, with some very kind 
insurance agent. I actually got a case where I got a insurance policy written, even though we have not gone into the stage of PSA yet. She was able to give me a insurance policy underwritten, and it's three times more than the number in the T12. Uh-huh. So that's the second one that I underwrite for to adjust for risk. The third one is the property tax. We have to adjust for that with an estimated purchase price. I actually got the tax bill, understand how the bill was calculated, and apply the new purchase price, the new assessed value to come up with the actual tax number instead of an estimation. So that's the third one. The number four that I adjust is that I adjust operating reserve. In the past, we we usually use your guidance, $1,000 a unit, right, for operating reserve. For a very big property, 300, 400 units, it may be sufficient, but for a small one, it may not. So I compare to the operating expense, and if that amount is less than two months of operating expense, then I will use the two months of operating expense. In some case, I even use four months of operating expense. However, I apply those adjustments with, with you know, professional adjustment. I don't just apply it for no reason. If a property is struggling and there are a lot of fluctuation things that I see in the OPEX, right? Then I want to adjust for that. But if a property is stable, 97% occupancy and all of that, then we don't have to just book the a very big operating reserve for nothing, right? The fourth one that I want to be sure is that I come up with a very detailed renovation budget. I have it spelled out, exterior, interior, curb appeal, whatever cost to come up with. So I usually drop in a tab in the Excel spreadsheet. So maybe this is a suggestion for you, Michael. If you can create another tab in there to give a template of a renovation, you will have a lot of new rookie people to have an idea of how to put in the renovation there. And then they just link that number from the renovation to the scenario to do the analysis. So if you do that, then you cover for the four major items on the related to the properties, right? So interest, cushion, insurance quote or indication, property tax recalculated, operating reserve, renovation. If we are solid on those five items, we're doing fine. What about rent projections? Rent projection. Oh, that's a good point. Rent projection. I am right now in Tampa, right? Tampa have had. 20 plus percent of rent growth in the last two, three years. That is not sustainable anymore. So now if you look into Star report, you start to see rent growth being negative, right? So rent growth being negative is something that we have to put into consideration. Uh, so we put the rent growth very little. We usually use 3% of rent growth and 2% expense growth accelerator. Sometimes I do 2-2. Yeah, because it's already hit the top for 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 a long time now. However, it's it very city from city though, and property by property. I give you an example. We was looking at a property in Clearwater, and it's already three dollars per square feet, and we know that there's a lot of property in the surra- surrounding area that is top and only two point six dollars per square feet. With that kind of supply, we cannot push for the property that we look at. We cannot push for higher growth because it will be unrealistic, even though that's what the broker or the management told us because we compare. So the key is to have as much data as you can because data is your strength. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good. What's your what's your 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 biggest challenge right now? The biggest challenge, I guess, is to inspire confidence in the 
in the investors because the investor they are scared, right? They do want to invest because they see their stock portfolio go down. The four one k is bad shape in bad shape, but it's, it's difficult to inspire confidence in them because of the market, the way that the market was. Yeah. Yeah. My, how can people connect with you and find out more about you? Oh, thank you. I am a partner with Sunbelt Equity Group. My email is mai at sunbeltequitygroup.com. My phone number is 425-535-5223. Outstanding. Well, this has been a great jam session, Mai. Really, really enjoyed it. And thank you for talking about a lot of the uh, objections that people just think about all the time and, and you've addressed them very well and it's clear you're getting deals done. So it's been super awesome. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. I've been learning a lot from you, Michael. Thank you for creating all of this and the community. Now, here's the thing, the difference between successful people and people who just never got out of the gate. And that is all people experience fear. The difference, though, is how successful people deal with their fear. And my head overcome her fears. And, and, you know, she's very conservative. Obviously, she's a CPA and she's overcome her need for security and to be conservative, right? You can be conservative all day long, be too conservative. So you never get a deal done. Of course, you never, ever lose any money either. So she's kind of found the balance, you know, and everybody struggles with, I'm not good enough. You know, I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too this. I'm too that. And she has overcome that. And I love how she overcomes fears with practice. And actually, when we train people in our dealmaker training, we have something called dealmaker certification. The reason we have a certification is for the same exact reason. We force people or encourage people to train in a safe environment, to actually underwrite a certain number of deals, talk to a certain number of brokers, et cetera, to get practice and with that some confidence. And this is how you overcome fears, right? You're never going to do it in your own mind. You're not going to do it by listening to podcasts or reading a bunch of stuff. You've got to start doing it. Repetition, repetition. We have something, this idea called a throwaway market. We're actually calling brokers in a market that we don't plan on buying. And this is perfect for your backyard. If you're in a markets, you know, if you're on either coast, for example, you're probably not going to be buying in the Bay Area or Boston. Okay. So, but why not call on some brokers in those areas and you can meet them in person and really get some, some confidence. So when you're actually calling into a live market, you can talk to brokers with a lot more confidence. The other thing that she highlighted really is adjusting your underwriting. This is so important. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're like, oh no, it's so hard to get deals done. We can't underwrite that. We can't get deals done the way we underwrote it two years ago. Okay, well then change your underwriting. We talked about some of those things. I remember after COVID, all the banks required 12 months of interest payment in escrow. Well, what, what is that? I don't never heard of that before. Well, then we put in the underwriting, right? So you got to adapt your underwriting based on what's going on right now. And the market's been changing so rapidly every, you know, almost every, well, certainly every quarter, possibly every month, you just have to adapt your underwriting. As long as the fundamentals are strong, which they are, then you adapt your underwriting. And that's exactly what Mai has done. And we talked about a risk-adjusted return. I think this is really important that you pay attention to that because your investors certainly are. And if you're a passive investor, you're definitely talking about an adjusted return. And that is don't just look at the returns of investment. Look at the underlying assumptions and therefore the risk of the investment. And this is so absolutely key because in the heyday, people were just shopping the highest return. And that's a mistake. You've got to look at the assumptions. And you can see now this deal that went belly up in Houston, for example, the reason they were able to get that deal is they didn't buy an interest rate cap. Those are expensive. 
an interest rate cap. So if I, if I have to spend $250,000 on interest rate cap, well, I can spend a quarter million dollars more. Therefore, I can outbid the next person. And so really look at the underlying assumptions being made. And so you can get a feeling for, for the risk, right? For example, if I have a fixed interest loan, that's lower risk. But fixed interest loan also means that my returns are probably going to be lower as well, right? So returns are lower, but gosh, I have a fixed term and I'm have to, I might have to keep it for seven or eight years. You're not getting out of there in three, okay? So if you understand that, you can invest accordingly and investors then can actually allocate their money based on different risk-adjusted returns. You have some more speculative investments and then you have much more conservative investments. If you're interested, by the way, investing in multifamily, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Our investment firm is called Nighthawk Equity. It's at nighthawkequity.com. Just schedule a call with us. Just click the join button, join our investor network. We'd love to have a conversation with you. We are scouring the U.S. market. Actually, in Georgia, it's not really that's where we invest in. And so we're always looking at deals. We'd love to have a conversation with you if you're interested in multifamily. We've also started looking at some other asset classes as well so that we can serve you better as passive investors. So with that being said, I hope you got some inspiration from today. And people are saying, hey, deals can't be done. And my proves it wrong. Raquel and her husband are proving it wrong. The truth is, it's actually even better to do deals right now because it's more balanced market. For example, as proof of this, you know, we're no longer putting in non-refundable deposits, which we certainly did a year and a half ago. That's not no longer required, thankfully. So it's much more balanced right now. It's actually a much better environment. And I do think that we're going to get much more opportunity to buy over the next 12 to 18 months. So with that, hope you found that useful. Catch you next episode. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.